Hi, this is Matt Morton, and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. I am your host, Sam Hughes, and today I am joined by composer Matt Morton. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No worries. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So before we dive into one of your most recent projects, I really want to know, how did you first begin your career into music composition? Well, it really probably started with my dad's record collection. <laughs> I grew up uh, in, you know, basically into a, a house full of music lovers, if not music players. Um, he played a little trumpet when he was younger, but, uh, you know, by the time I came around, uh, he wasn't really uh, playing music, but he sure had an amazing uh, ear for it. And uh, we had just tons and tons of great records oh nice yeah so pretty much uh, you know the house was always full of good music so you can't go wrong with good music yeah yeah i i think as an artist it always starts you know you become an artist uh the second that you fall deep enough in love with uh the art uh to want to make it yourself yeah definitely that was definitely the case for me uh and then when i was about nine I had an uncle who uh, was a multi-instrumentalist and uh, knew enough guitar to get me started. Uh, so I took some lessons with him for about six months. And then he told my parents that I was better than he was and <laughs> that I needed a new teacher. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that was 1986. So I've been playing guitar since then. And then ever since then, I've been uh, adding instruments and recording gear and techniques and, you know, just mostly a, a self uh you know taught musician um and awesome composer but yeah it's just kind of it started from the guitar and then it was you kind of start to realize like okay you know i have control over the guitar but the way that it's recorded has an effect on the way that it ends up sounding and the way that it's mixed relative to you know what what the bass player is playing and the drummer and and the the parts that they choose and you know, whether or not um, we're all rhythmically locked in. And then, you know, there's you basically start to see that circle widen. And my curiosity just can never be quenched. I'm <laughs> always <laughs> learning new things. And, you know, I'm probably just as big a geek on the recording and engineering side as I am on the music side. Yeah, sure. You know, basically, I, I was in rock bands going through, you know, all the way through middle school and high school. And then uh, I went off to college and started a jam band. Uh, I was a lead guitar player in a jam band for about nine years. So we, we stayed together uh, through college and then, you know, gave it the old college try after we graduated to see like, you know, none of us wanted to be stuck in traffic in our you know, 50s and be thinking like, ah, oh, what if we, what if we would have given the band, a, you know, a try? So yeah, we definitely. gave it a try for five years and um, played regionally, played all over the kind of the eastern half of the U.S. And we had a van and a trailer and a merch guy and a door guy and, a, you know, oh, wow. a website and, you know, all that stuff. And it was back in the, you know, MySpace days, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> but uh, we started to, you know, kind of get to that level where you start to get record uh, deal offers and, and distribution um, offers for albums that we had already recorded. And um, we were kind of running into the music industry's lack of response at that point to digital piracy. So 
Um, yeah. Their profits were going way down, but the, the language in their contracts was not changing very much. So they still wanted all your control, but they were paying less for it. And so, not, you know, every time we would get an attorney, our in, attorney involved to try and negotiate better deal points and, and stuff like that, they'd be like, ah, you guys are too much trouble. Like, we'll just move on to some other band that doesn't understand that this is a bad contract, basically. <laughs> uh, reading between the lines, you know. Um, yeah. So we never made that kind of jump up to, you know, the old school way of making it, which would have been, you know, like signing with a major label and yeah. doing that whole thing, um, which I'm thankful for because looking back on it, I realized that I loved the creativity of being in a band um, and having those people to work off of. You know, it's a collaborative art, just like filmmaking. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of hassle and it's it was getting increasingly difficult to make money. Um, I, I think that, you know, the music industry is kind of pulled up from that nosedive in the, you know, in the coming, in the years that were, you know, kind of after that, which was the early 2000s. But uh, for me, I was, I was starting to do my first composing gigs around then, you know, just little one and two minute, you know, web films, um, mainly for clothing retailers, um, you know, hospital chains, um, you know, yeah. stuff like that, little short films. And, um, and actually, one of the my main collaborator um as a composer is is todd douglas miller uh who directed apollo 11 and dinosaur 13 and the last steps yeah. and all of these um kind of bigger titles that i've done and he and i actually went to high school together so <laughs> oh, no way um and and we had a high school band so he was the singer in my band in high school and after high school he went off to film school I, you know, hit the road as a musician, and then kind of after all the dust settled after college, he was starting to uh, do his first uh, films, and I was starting to do my first composing. We kind of joined forces back up, and so for about the last 20 years, we've been working together. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah, so we did, you know, a bunch of projects, and, and luckily in obscurity and got to make all our mistakes before people were really paying attention to us and kind of hone our craft. <laughs> and um, in the meantime, I kind of paid the bills with guitar and bass lessons. Um, and uh, that was actually an amazing um, side gig because I basically got paid, you know, $40 an hour to, to transcribe songs on guitar keep my keep those skills sharp yeah and also just learn a lot about how songs are put together and arrangements and chord you know progressions and um you know even if a little girl wants a wants to learn you know a, a taylor swift song or a i'm a barbie girl or whatever like you know you can you can learn something from any song oh yeah definitely whether or not you personally would choose to listen to it in your normal life so uh, you know, I have thousands of pages of transcribed um, guitar and bass and ukulele music. And, I, you know, I've taught a bunch of people um, recording and, and composing and stuff like that. Yeah, and you're a pro at Barbie Girl now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got it down. I got it down. <laughs> Actually, there's a whole suite of Barbie songs I, I wasn't aware of. There's, you know, like Barbie in the Crystal Palace or some, you know, <laughs> she wanted to learn them all. So. No way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
You've got a full Barbie repertoire. That's right. Back pocket. That's, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, man, I mean, if you're an up and coming composer, um, it's it's a lot better than getting a, a job like uh, cleaning dishes or, or even, you know, working on spreadsheets somewhere. It's like if you can get a side gig that's sort of in your um, in your profession, you know, it's it's definitely a good thing. I think there's a there's a good reason why, you know, a lot. I think there's a stigma attached to teaching, like uh, those who can do, those who can't teach, right? Oh yeah, but yeah. you look back, it's like, oh, are you saying that about you know Mozart and Beethoven? Because those guys taught, <laughs> you know, those those guys were teaching the aristocracy of Vienna, and and there's a reason why they did it. It's because you know sometimes being a composer, the 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 paychecks well, are got to pay the bills right yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's an unreliable um way to make your money so teaching uh, can yeah. kind of help mitigate that a little bit so yeah and i i'd, I'd say basically you know just worked you know grinded for a lot of years you know that what they say about the overnight success taking 10 years um in my case you know it's been 15 years of um of of teaching and composing and, um, you know, building my portfolio or, or, you know, my reel up, um, building up my studio, the gear that you need, yeah. you know, just every time you get a paying gig, put a little bit more into, uh, you know, some nicer preamps or some, you know, better speakers or, you know, um, this or that shiny new synth or, or old synth. <laughs> yeah. So. It's uh, definitely more popular these days. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing we really did that got much notice was uh, Dinosaur 13. That got into the Sundance Film Festival. We were the opening night um, U.S. documentary. So they, there are four, you know, four uh, categories at Sundance, the U.S. doc, the U.S. narrative, and then the world versions of those two. And right. so they, they used to pick one film from each of those uh, to be the opening night thing, and it was kind of an honor. So... We got to do that in 2014, and that's awesome. Um, after the screening, there was kind of a, a bidding war, and uh, Lionsgate and CNN Films bought uh, the distribution rights, uh, theatrical and, and TV, uh, respectively. There, and uh, you know, the film had a, a short theatrical run. Um, didn't didn't do all that great, honestly. But all oh, right, it's a shame. Yeah, it did really well on CNN and ended up winning an Emmy for outstanding science and technology programming in 2015. Oh wow! So um, that really gave us a boost um, as a filmmaking team. And then we did a short film about Apollo 17, which was the last mission to the moon in 1972 right and that was released between cnn and great big films um which is kind of their uh online documentary uh site they they typically do little one to three minute short attention span you know social media type things yeah but that was their first foray into kind of 15 to 20 minute films we were one of a batch of like i think eight or ten films that that were released in 2016 and in our film the average viewership for our 20 minute cut was like 19 and a half minutes minutes which is about as good as you can hope for i was gonna uh, say yeah that's pretty good <laughs> so uh you know at that point it's 2016 and the uh 
the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11, you know, historic first moon landing was coming up uh, in 2019. And, you know, everyone knew that, like, everybody and their brother was going to be making uh, an Apollo-themed thing for that year. So CNN, uh, since we had already done, you know, this, the Apollo 17 film was called The Last Steps, and it was just like Apollo 11, it was all archival footage, no narrator, kind of music-driven, um, and it's it's just kind of an experience film. You we wanted you to kind of ride along um, in it, and and you know have that sense of feeling like you're there. And since we had already done that on a on a smaller scale, we kind of got the nod from CNN to do it as a feature length uh, film, and so. That that's kind of the the latest project we worked on, and and yeah, so I, I guess the big change from the Apollo 17 short to Apollo 11 was just that uh, for the Apollo 17 short, I kind of used any instrument available to a modern composer. So I was using yeah. you know any library I felt like. I was just spinning through Contact and like okay. Uh, do I want to use a, you know, a glass harmonica or do I want to use a, you know, um, super modern sounding drum loop, whatever, who cares, you know, just make it cool. Yeah. Um, but upon kind of, which I think the score for that really works, but going back and listening to it, you know, on the big screen and, and reflecting on it a little bit more, there were moments when some of the modern sounds kind of took me out of the feeling of really being there um, back in the day. Yeah. So when we did Apollo 11, I kind of made the decision early on to only use instruments and effects that could have made those sounds in 1969 at the time of the mission. Oh, nice. Uh, Yeah, so, uh, yeah, every instrument and sound, you know, technically could have been made if the composer was, you know, had enough money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, I used some pretty pricey stuff. I I um I got one of the twenty five reissued Moog synthesizer three C. Oh damn, uh, nice modulars. Um, so those were, you know, at the time. So it's a, it's kind of like a recreation of a nineteen sixty eight Moog three C. Yeah, which uh, if your listeners uh, can can picture, you know, Keith Emerson playing with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or maybe picture a 1920s uh, <laughs> a telephone operator <laughs> at a switchboard with, like, tons of patch cables, you know, connect, <laughs> yeah. connecting calls between That's different parts of the That's basically what they city. are now. Yeah, it's like a giant <laughs> wall of electronics uh, with, uh, with a bunch of patch cords and, and then a keyboard sitting at the base of it. So yeah. um, I, I bought that after, you know, kind of coming at synthesis backwards chronologically you know i started with the moog sub 37 and then moved on to uh you know voyager xl and then to the reissued moog uh mini moog model d which was like you know so we're going we're traveling backward from you know 2015 to uh 2010 to then the model d was uh 1970 and then the the 3C was uh, 1968. They had versions of it earlier on. I, I did a lot of research on early days of synthesis and music concrete and all that kind of stuff. And uh, 
just geeked out and <laughs> yeah just had a super nerd fest yeah so i you know i didn't even use the the model d on the score because technically that was a year later you know they were already prototyping it of course but ah, you were very precise yeah you're like nope nope no <laughs> so uh yeah i also used a, a benson Rec 2 which was uh restored and modified by sound gas limited up in uh, derbyshire and uh, Mellotron. Um, it was a it was a modern you know digital one, um, but it, the actual keyboard one made by Mellotron and it, you know used all the old uh, tapes or you know recording tapes and stuff like that. I of course had to do the score on computer because uh, if I would have done it on reel to reel and really you know done it as a 1969 person uh, without you know without a staff of engineers like like Abbey Road, you know, guys in white lab coats running around, there's no way that I could have kept up with all of the picture changes um, oh, to the no edit. Yeah. I mean, the film was changing it up until like two days before the Sundance deadline, so um, it would have been impossible. So, there, you know, there were certain modern um, compromises that I had to make as far as, you know, using a modern DAW, but... Um, you know, the gold standard was basically, could these sounds have been made back in the day? And so um, I stuck as, as close as humanly possible to that given budget and time constraints. But also had a real Hammond uh, A100 and a, a Leslie 147. I had a, um, a uh, Maestro... Rhythm King MRK1, which is 1967 uh, drum machine, kind of looks like it's huge. It's like it looks like a you know an amp head, like a Marshall head, um, and also an Ace Tone Rhythm Ace uh, oh, FR1, wow. which is this you know the same drum machine that like um, uh, JJ Kale used on Naturally. You know if you think of think of that. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of a, a mixture of old stuff, and then of course the orchestra, which yeah. has been around for hundred, hundreds of years. Um, so yeah, that was my palette for Apollo Eleven, and I spent a couple of years um, really just <laughs> down in the basement. You know, it was almost like you know learning all the sounds of all this old gear was kind of like you know the the astronauts like training in the simulators. You know, what is this? <laughs> What does this spaceship do? You know, it's it's literally it almost looks like uh, <laughs> yeah. the panel, of, you know, the control panel of the the lunar land. Yeah, some of those modulars you definitely look like a cockpit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was it was just the cool the coolest project, and uh, yeah, I had so much fun working on it. Yeah, and it sounds like you had quite a lot of freedom in terms of like, did you have a brief or did you get to be like, hey, look, I think I know what this needs. I'm gonna do this. Yeah, well, the you know the the idea of only using 1969 or earlier instruments, and then you know choosing to feature the synth, which you know, I kind of arrived at from just a thought experiment of you know thinking, you know, the Apollo program at the time was the cutting edge of science and technology, and it was really credited with fast forwarding the normal pace of technological progress by you know 10 or 20 years the, yeah you know, the fact that we dumped that much uh, money and and human resources into science it was just sort of unprecedented and what we got back from it was 
huge. Oh, yeah. Um, it, we got a lot of stuff that we didn't even expect to get, um, which uh, it begs the question, why aren't we still doing that? But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, I was trying to think, like, you know, what was there a parallel in the music technology uh, industry? Because, you know, every time uh, an instrument is developed, new music is created for it. You know, even going back to, you know, the the piano, you know, that we take it for granted that the piano has been around forever. But, you know, uh, the full name of the piano is the piano e forte. It means that it can play both both loud and soft, which was not a given, you know, with a harpsichord, you only got one volume. So um, once keyboard players could add, you know, dynamic nuance to their performances, everything changed. And, you know, even Beethoven in the 1800s was uh, was pushing piano developers uh, or instrument you know, designers to to make louder and stronger pianos um, so that they could compete with with the orchestra. So, you know, uh, innovation in instruments goes way back even to instruments that we feel like, you know, have literally not changed or have been around for hundreds of years. So, um, you know, the same thing was happening in the 60s with a lot of different things, you know, a lot of the, you know, guitar pedals, um, you know, the fuzz face and the, um, the univibe and, you know, there was a lot of there's a lot of technology to choose from, but specifically I picked the synthesizer because it was kind of really blowing up in 1969. Um, yeah. W- Wendy Carlos had just released Switched on Bach in October of 68. Um, they had a, a four Moog modular you know, concert in the Sculpture Garden of uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in August of, of 69 that drew like 5,000 people. And actually one of those four, four uh, modulars that was specially designed for that per- performance and you know featured the first presets on any synthesizer, um, one of those four ended up being Keith Emerson's um, synth <laughs> oh, <laughs> going no forward. And then um, there were some other interesting things too, um, like Don Buchla, who uh, on the West Coast was at the same time that Bob Moog um, on the East Coast was developing the Moog synthesizer in, you know, 63, um, 64. In the exact same years in uh, San Francisco, Don Buchla was working with the San Francisco uh, Tape Music. Um, what was it? San Francisco Tape. I don't know if they were a society or whatever they were, but, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he, he was developing his, his synth over there. And so anyway, Don Buchla and uh, Alan Perlman, who later founded ARP, those two guys actually were, uh, they worked on the space program. They were actually engineers. Really? Um, yeah, that contributed to, you know, the eventual landing on the moon. So, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. So, so there was a pair, you know, literal connection between the two. And then also just the fact that like, you know, just like the space program gave birth to this sort of like, you know, dissemination of all this amazing technology. Same thing happened with the synth, you know, once that got into people's hands um, and, and, you know, at first, they cost as much as a house and a car. Um, they were incredibly expensive. 
But once once real people, or at least rock stars, got a hold of them, um, they started doing all kinds of, of cool stuff. And it, it, it paved the way for artists um, in the 70s, like, you know, Brian Eno and Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and yeah. all those guys. They Once it got in their hands and, you know, it started getting a little... Uh, cheaper and you know once the mini mode came out and the the 2600 came out and all of those um, really interesting stuff started happening so it was kind of like you know Apollo was a big bang in science and technology and and the synth was really a big bang that gave birth to all kinds of new genres that couldn't have existed before it so it just seemed like a kind of a natural fit but um, it was in my mind, it made total sense, but in the mind of the director, <laughs> even though we're buds and like he, you know, we've been working forever, I, I don't think I probably could have um, pitched him this if I was just some, you know, composer off the street. Like I, I, I had to call in on all of that trust capital that I had built up with him over many years. Trust me, man, this is gonna work. Yeah, and then even then, I had to, you know, do a lot of experimentation and like. Basically, I I recorded via audio and video all kinds of, you know, kind of... I was almost creating my own temp for the film, um, trying to be like, look, man, if we, you know, combine the orchestra with the synth, um, I think you're, you know, I, I think it really could be amazing. Um, you know, I was, I was getting into some old... Um, some old synth stuff from the 60s and 70s and putting it up against um, some of our old Apollo 17 footage just because we didn't have the Apollo 11 footage yet. And I and there's just something so cool about vintage synthesizer music underneath vintage space um, footage, just aesthetically. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, not even yeah. getting philosophical and thinking about the, the literal connections uh, between the two, but um, he started to see the light and... You know, kind of with every every piece of music, I was kind of winning them over um, to it. So it, it it wasn't the easy route. I mean, it would have been a lot easier to just stick with like a you know, kind of expected um, orchestral uh, type of score. But I think the I think the end result is a lot richer because we kind of took some chances that way. Yeah, and it's kind of a luxury when you have that close connection with a director. I mean, you guys were friends, so you had that kind of leverage to be like hey man look trust me i know what i'm doing this is going to be great yeah and you know the other thing too is we had the time yes i mean i spent a couple of years on the score that's not typical um that's that's really big yeah, yeah yeah so i had time to not even just read books or you know do a lot of i didn't just research the music of the 60s um, I was researching the whole space program. I mean, I was reading books about how they were solving, you know, early problems with the Saturn V, with, uh, you know, pogoing, which is like vibration along the length of the um, the rocket, and how, like, the F1 engine kept blowing up because there wasn't enough separation between all the fuel nozzles on the, you know, on the underside. So you're like a NASA expert. Yeah, now. yeah. Like... I mean, I went to town, man. I really did. But I, I think that um, I kind of method acted the score, I guess, um, in yeah, a way. Yeah, so you got into the role. I mean, like... yeah. For one, I did it because I, I super enjoyed it. And I've always been a, you know, space yeah. nut. But at the same time, I, I really do think that, you know, the story has to be 
the source of all inspiration for the music. Um, the cl the more that you can key the the music into the actual story, the more successful it's going to be. Because at oh, the definitely. end of the day, you know, yes, I'm trying to make music that's pleasing to me and and you know that sounds good and stuff, but. Uh, my number one job is to serve the story and to uh, help tell that story through music that's locked in um, to it. And so I, I, I really think like just sort of every bit that I learned about the Apollo program just gave me more respect and more uh, kind of a sense of awe of what was accomplished yeah definitely and I, I i really tried to put that into the music um you know literally on one side you've got arguably the greatest achievement by humankind on a technological level but you you know which is also not just a human achievement i mean it it's basically like the most significant thing on an evolutionary level um that we've done since you know the first fish walked on land <laughs> oh yeah I mean, we, definitely that was the first time we left our native planet and it if we're still around in a couple million years people will still remember the name of neil armstrong um long after we're you know forgotten <laughs> he will still be the first the first human the the first life form from earth uh that ever walked on a, on a foreign planet and um and so there's that rev that sense of reverence for uh, what happened, but also there's, you know, I, one thing I found when I was uh, watching a lot of, you know, I watched pretty much everything that I could put my hands on, um, documentary-wise, you know, um, For All Mankind, In the Shadow of the Moon, Moonwalk One, um, and then, you know, narrative-wise, like, of course, like, Apollo 13 is awesome. Um, bumped it, I actually bumped into Ron Howard in New York uh, about a month and a half ago and got to, oh, cool. got to talk to him about how much I respected uh, uh, James Horner's um, score for Apollo 13. I was like, man, that was so good. I knew I couldn't even, like, go, you know, anywhere near in the direction that he went with uh with his score and he was like oh my gosh yeah he was on fire that year because he not only did he do apollo 13 that year but he also did the braveheart score in the same year i was like man oh wow really that guy was yeah <laughs> that was the same year yeah that guy was throwing lightning bolts that year but um anyway so you know going back and and um checking out all of the scores that have been done over the years by so many great composers um, it was kind of a, a challenge to to find something unique to say um, in a way. Yeah. But one thing that I did notice is that um, a lot of the films feel like they take it for granted that everyone got back safe. Uh, Apollo 13, I thought, you know, because of the nature of it, there's definitely some tension in there. Yeah. But, you know, anything that covers the rest of them, you see the liftoff and it's just like this triumphant music. Um, and you know, it's almost like they're not factoring in the fact that, yeah, the danger and the fear. Yeah. I mean, basically they had a one in four chance of dying. Yeah. Um, they're sitting on a, a 36 story, six and a half Explosive. million pounds <laughs> rocket <laughs> that was built, you know, that was built, you know, uh, Buzz Aldrin always says, you know, at, is being 
you know, kind of asked like, hey, what did it feel like, you know, sitting in that rocket getting ready to lift off? And he's like, well, it's a, you know, it's a hell of a thing sitting in this, this huge rocket that was built by the lowest bidder, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, not only is it explosive, but it was also built as cheaply as they could. Cheap. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I really wanted to, I wanted to underline that sense of danger and, and not let you feel like, okay, it's taken for granted, you know, each time they're going to do a new thing like a translunar injection or a separation and docking or a lunar orbit insertion or a power descent, you know, yeah. all these different things were all possibilities for them to die or, you know, for it to not go right. And, and then they, they'd have to, you know, figure out how to make it work. So that's what I really tried to do. And, and luckily, like, you know, the reverence for the significance of the act also kind of sounds a little bit like danger um, at the same time, too. So musically, those those two ideas were kind of related, and I was able to kind of kill two birds, so to speak. Yeah, awesome. Did you um, get to meet Buzz or anything? Yeah, I met um, I met Michael first. We did a couple of uh, Michael Collins, the command module pilot, who everyone forgets about. But <laughs> but uh, I feel bad about that. But you know, yeah. like I, I just about remember Buzz as well. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no worries. I mean, he, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, he's uh, he's awesome. He's uh, uh, Michael and Buzz are still alive, and uh, we did a couple of test screenings at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in D.C. right there on the National Mall, and uh, they've got a big uh, IMAX screen and the first couple of reels that we got. So I haven't spoken at all about the footage that we got, but basically when we rolled into this project, we we just were send, setting out to get fresh scans of the 16 and 35 millimeter film that everyone has known about and has made all of the Apollo films you know, of the last 50 years. They've all been made by these same source tapes and then they keep getting rescanned in digitally uh, every few years as technology uh, kind of increases. Yeah. But midway, not even midway, um, fairly early on in the project, we became aware through the National Archives of this treasure trove of 65 uh, 5-perf um, and 70-millimeter uh, footage that NASA had kind of set aside, and um, nobody... It was shot for... Uh, a lot of the 65 was shot for a documentary that was... Uh, funded by NASA at the time of the mission that ended up being released a couple of years later called Moonwalk One, which uh, not too many people are familiar with, but it's kind of a cult classic amongst uh, you know space nerds and and just uh, lovers of you know kind of slightly odd films. I I probably watched it like thirty times during the making of <laughs> Apollo Eleven. Uh, I I absolutely love it. Uh, Anyway, they, from what I understand, um, they shot for a little while um, using these big, you know, Todd AO 65 uh, 5 perf cameras. And then 
when it got to the the you know the processing stage, they realized why not that many people shoot in that huge format because it was a real pain in the neck and and expensive and stuff like that. So they stopped filming that way after a little bit. But um, and then when they were making the film, they they I believe they cropped it down um, and reprinted it onto thirty five and basically chopped off the wing, you know, the sides of the shots and, uh, you know, lowered the resolution. And that's kind of like what everyone has been using um, yeah. over the last few years. But they found these originals, and so we were like, oh, my God, you know, there's like, I think, 150 reels or something. Um, don't quote me on that. I think there might have even been more. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, we got all of them, and th- they weren't super labeled um you know if you're lucky you you had a date if you're really lucky you might have a, a loose shot list but basically they the photographers were just shooting fast and loose just trying to get it down and they were like you know we'll sort it out later but we got to get this stuff while it's happening you know you yeah. run out of film quick yeah i can imagine them just being like just go 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 <laughs> yeah exactly so we decided to test a little bit of the footage, and so we picked two reels, one of which was the liftoff and one was the suiting up on the morning of the launch. And we did, uh, we did a test screening there, and uh, you know, again, the look on their face, their faces when they're suiting up um, actually contrasted quite a bit against you know, three or four days before the launch, they did sort of a, a dress rehearsal Yeah, where they all, you know, were getting suited up and kind of going through all the paces of what would happen on launch day. And if you watch that footage, they're all, you know, very loose. They're joking around. They're smiling. You know, they're chilling. Yeah. But on the day of... <laughs> just like quiet. Yeah. You see the weight of the world on their shoulders and, and just, you know, concentration and had to be a little fear in there too um, oh man i can't even imagine what you would feel like on that day yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah um w- got to meet uh michael collins at one of those test screenings um actually the second test screening it wasn't the one i was describing um but it was that one was attended by michael collins and his two daughters and then rick armstrong and mark armstrong who are um Neil Armstrong's sons and uh, and their families. And basically we were looking for, and some, some members of NASA and, and uh, NARA, which is the National Archives. Wow, that's so cool. You must have been in your element. Oh man, it was amazing. Yeah, you, I mean, getting to go into uh, National Air and Space Museum, which Michael Collins was actually the first director of, of that museum but oh really anyway yeah yeah i i learned that that day it was it was a trip waiting to go in there and like i'm sitting here you know on the sidewalk our cars let us out in front of the museum and i look over at michael and behind him is a picture of the three apollo 11 astronauts like blown up you know 10 feet tall and uh, i'm like man i'm like standing next to like a walking wikipedia entry you know <laughs> but he couldn't have been nicer but you know the the real the main reason we had him there is that we wanted to play them you know the liftoff sequence um to ask them you know is that 
we played him the first 20 minutes of the film and we we wanted feedback on like is that what it sounded like is that what it felt like is yeah. that you know that kind of thing and um and uh michael actually said uh he was like you know it wasn't loud at all for us we were 36 stories up all closed in um we couldn't really hear how loud it was all we felt was the on the bottom of the saturn V rocket there's five rocket engines and the mid the four outside ones are static they don't move but right. the one in the middle moves and it's computer controlled to try and keep the rocket upright so it's kind of like he said it's like trying to balance a pencil on the end of your finger you have to make a lot of adjustments to keep the point of the you know yeah that makes the sense. pencil up in the air yeah so yeah. they were basically just you know getting jostled around like crazy as that computer was making <laughs> you know tons of adjustments per second so yeah you know he uh so he did he couldn't speak to the the rocket sound but rick and mark armstrong were on a boat um about two to three miles away from the launch pad so they were closer than most people in the public who were watching on the beach um, from five miles away, they were a little closer and they, they had like, I think it was a Life or, or Time magazine uh, staff phot photographer because they were trying to get shots of, you know, Neil Armstrong's family watching him lift off and stuff like that. And yeah. they said that they wanted our, our liftoff sound to be louder because they said they've never heard anything in their whole life that was that loud and no sound system created has ever been able to recreate it well enough. So Mark Armstrong was very, you know, animated. He was like, yeah. man, I was just like blown away by it. And I, I wish, you know, can you make it louder? Can you make it louder? Meanwhile, <laughs> after the screening, we were leaving and one of the guys, either with NASA or with the National Archives, I can't remember which, took our, our director aside and admitted to him that it actually triggered his PTSD from being a, a Marine in, in the armed forces. Oh, my God. So, you know, so he was like, make it quieter. So, you know, we kind of couldn't win already with a, yeah, a yeah. small audience. <laughs> but, uh, and then I later, um, the film, after it got released and everything, um, the, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Starmus Festival. It was begun by uh, Stephen Hawking and uh, Brian May of Queen and a couple of other people. Uh, but it was started basically the, to, to be a festival that acknowledged the importance of the connection between science and music and the arts. Yeah. So hence the the star, you know, representing like stars in the sky and, and science, and then the the moose um, being short for music, and uh, so anyway, we were awarded uh, the Apollo Eleven documentary was awarded the Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication um, this past summer. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah that's pretty epic. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Our our fellow award you know, recipients were Brian Eno and Elon Musk. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty good company. That's pretty tall cotton, as they say. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool company to be in with some awards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's where I got to meet Buzz in, um, in Switzerland. Um, and uh, he was a trip, man. Uh, I mean, I only got... The, 
it's so funny. You can be in a room with, uh, we were in a room like a kind of a VIP little, you know, cocktail hour dinner type thing with, you know, almost all of the living uh, Apollo astronauts. Um, we were there with like Kip Thorne, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, proving Einstein's hypothesis about gravitational waves that he had made a hundred years ago, but, you know... Couldn't prove it, yeah. Yeah, the technology <laughs> didn't exist. They, they didn't have sense enough, sensitive enough equipment to, to be able to to sense it and prove it and measure it and stuff like that. Yeah. So you're, you're in a room with all these people that are world famous and, you know, amazing that have walked on the moon and then Buzz Aldrin walks in and, you know, and like everybody turns into a fanboy. It's funny. Um, not so, probably not so much the Apollo astronauts, but like, you know, rock stars like Steve Vai was there. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The, the opening night, uh, festivities, were was like a they had like a 45 minute uh, music and and video presentation where uh, it was Hans Zimmer um, did a bunch of music from Inception and Da Vinci Code and whatnot and some new uh, compositions and it was all synced up with this footage of the Apollo programs um, some of which we supplied to Hans and, and uh, Paul Franklin, who did the the visual effects on Inception and Dark Knight and all that stuff. He was kind of heading that up. But the, uh, yeah, ha so Hans had a small orchestra, and then he had Rick Wakeman from Yes on piano. Man, this is like a dream. Like, yeah. This is like, yeah. none of this sounds real. <laughs> and he had, yeah, Steve I was on guitar. <laughs> And yeah. like uh, Peter Gabriel was in the audience, and uh, and who you know who gave Brian Eno his award, and like we all ended up at the hotel bar later. Like it does sound totally made up. Yeah, it's like you get home the next day and you're like, wait a minute, did did that all happen? Like yeah, well you get home and you're like. Real life is not stimulating any longer. Yeah, yeah. now what? <laughs> yeah, now what do I do with my life? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's when I met Buzz, but, uh, you know, so he walks into this cocktail party, um, and, uh, you know, one by one, people are going up and introducing themselves and uh, shaking his hand and stuff. Yeah, and he's got a lot of character and energy for a 90-year-old, right? Like he does. He does, yeah. So I, <laughs> I said, hi, Mr. Aldrin. My name's Matt Morton. I did the music for Apollo 11. And he's like, he's like what? <laughs> I was like, and then I repeated it. And he was like, oh, music? He's like, ah, oh, I'm tone deaf. And he like then he moved on. That was all I got. <laughs> like all that right, was it. that was your moment. That was it. <laughs> Enjoy. Ah, I'm tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> and then walks off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was that oh, was pretty amazing. funny. Had a better conversation with Michael Andrew, uh, uh, Mike, <laughs> Michael Collins. Uh, but yeah, that was. Uh, it was just a trip, man. I mean, we we've gotten to meet so so many cool people um, from the from the project, but it was really really cool to meet the guys that actually went and did it. Um, it's just it's it's an incredible achievement, and it was like such an honor and such a humbling experience to to get to put 
that to music i mean yeah dream dream project for sure and like where can we see it how can we watch apollo 11 so apollo 11 uh was in theaters last year um i i don't know it slowly rolled out throughout the world so it was in the uk um in imax for uh a couple of weeks and i got to come out and enter the film at the blue dot festival oh cool um, on the night of the 50th anniversary, I flew into Manchester and went up there and like watched Kraftwerk play and stuff. That was so cool. And then, oh, nice. And then, uh, entered the film up there. Um, and let's see, we also played it at Sundance London. And, uh, in a couple weeks, we'll, the Apollo 11 crew, we're gonna, we're gonna head to London, uh, cause we're nominated for a BAFTA for um, best documentary so congratulations that's amazing thank you thank you yeah uh so we'll be in your neck of the woods here uh, again soon but i'm i'm not exactly sure um how it's distributed uh, in in the uk uh but around the world if it's not in theaters uh it's available on video on demand um all over the place and the blu-ray is out now yeah i'm sure it's on like amazon prime yeah. or Awesome. And there's also uh, a 45 minute um, version with a little bit different footage, and and basically it's meant uh, for the giant screen theaters in science centers and museums. So uh, you know, check your. It's especially good for younger kids. I yeah. Mean, both versions of the film are, are rated G, so you know they're suitable for all audiences but the shorter length i think is a little bit easier for you know younger yeah easier to absorb stuff exactly so yeah if you can't see it on the big screen you know the full version you might be able to see the shorter version on the big screen and then see the longer version uh that that has you know definitely i i recommend the longer version but uh the shorter version is very good moves it moves very quickly, and uh, it's like over too quick. You're just like, oh man, I want more. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's good really good, and and the fact that it's playing on those big IMAX uh, screens and those giant screens um, is is really cool. Yeah, I bet the IMAX screen really makes a big impact. Yes, yes, and the music. You know, um, there's a there's a lot of low end coming out of that Moog synth and those, oh, those yeah. old drum machines, like the the rhythm ace. Uh, that I used, that was the, the you know, grandfather of the 808. Like, that was, uh, Ace Tone was the first company um, by the guy who later founded Roland. So, and that was the first transistorized drum machine um, yeah. in the world in 1967. So that thing's got just beautiful low end. So that coming through like a huge, uh, you know, theater sound system is just so fun <laughs> oh man yeah i can imagine like well i have to check out apollo 11 then it sounds pretty damn epic i have to say yeah yeah definitely do that okay so i only have one final question for you if you can tell me what lies in the future for you now what are you working on next uh well the same team that uh i've been working with for you know 20 years we have a couple of projects in the works they're going to be again uh because we like to work slow and you know be very thorough uh, they won't be coming out anytime soon but uh, that's the way that we like it you know i, I, I yeah, love yeah. <laughs> doing all of the back research and stuff you need so, the time yeah yeah so there's 
there's a, a project that's going to be nonfiction, and then there's also going to be, uh, you know, a narrative uh, scripted uh, film in the works. So really excited about those. Oh, awesome. I just just wrapped in the fall. I did a, a short uh, boxing documentary, of all things. Okay, cool. With the, the director, uh, Peter Berg, um, who did, you know, Friday Night Lights and Lone Survivor and Mile 22 and stuff like that. And uh, it was he was kind of like I, I guess he saw Apollo Eleven and, and was like you know loved the fact that it underlined the danger that they faced. Yeah. And he is uh, a huge into boxing, so he he saw Apollo Eleven and he was like you know boxers face those same dangers and you know this summer a few different boxers died after their fights um, oh, because man. of swelling and, you know, basically head injuries and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he he had his people approach me, and we did a short documentary uh, called Heavy Fury versus Schwartz, and it was about, uh, you know, a, a heavyweight bout uh, from last summer. So it was, uh, it, it sounds, it's got a lot of the, you know, sense of danger that uh, Apollo 11 has and, and stuff. So hopefully I'll be working with him uh, again soon. And as, as far as uh, short term, I don't, I literally don't have anything right now, which is really great. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm catching up on a few things and, and actually working on some tracks uh, for myself because, I, you know, becomes increasingly hard when you uh, turn your passion into a, a business. Very often you get stuck in this trap where you only do music if you're being hired for it. And that's that's a bad trap as an artist. You got to always make sure that you're you know spending time making music for yourself too. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm very happily doing that uh, right now as well as uh, doing a little bit of work on, you know, I I've been using my main computer right now is a 2010 Mac Pro, which is definitely showing its age. So I just got <laughs> I just got one of the new ones that just came out uh, in December of 2019, and I'm kind of uh, getting that set up and getting all the the libraries moved over and stuff. So it, it, nice. anyone who's gone through that knows that that's not a, a short process. So I've got plenty on my uh, plenty on my table for sure. Uh, uh, even though I'm not actively composing at the, at the moment, so yeah, it sounds like you're a bit of a busy guy. Even though you know you try and play it like you've not got much on, you know that's it right. Quite a lot to me. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta have those downtimes. I think. I, I I think in general, uh, everyone works a little bit too much, and uh, it's true. It's true. You know, if you don't get out there and live your life and uh, and uh, see the outside from, you know. From time to time, then you won't have as as much to draw from. Um, it's very true as an artist. So I always try to. You know, I don't live in New York or L.A. I live in Columbus, Ohio, um, which is definitely not a center of the entertainment industry. But um, it allows me to work a little bit less and a, a little. You know, it's almost like the Jerry Maguire approach. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like less clients, but with you know putting more heart and more energy into each project that I do. So um, I enjoy my breaks just as much as I enjoy um, my my projects. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that's a very amazing note to leave it on as well. And I have to say, 
Um, I don't know about my listeners, but for me, it's been an amazingly educational and fascinating episode for me, definitely. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks again. Oh, man, thanks so much. I, I uh, happily uh, talk shop and 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 nerd for as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been awesome. And thanks again, Matt. And hopefully we'll see you again in the future. All right. Sounds good. Take care.